There are certain dates that we have inscribed in our memory. September 11th, of course, will always be part of American history, a date that will live in infamy, as was December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor. But there are other dates. For instance, July 20th, 1969. Do you remember that date? First of all, how many were not even born yet? (laughs) Okay, so you only read about this event. On July 20th, 1969, I was like two weeks old. No, I was like 13 years, almost 14 years old. But I remember watching this on television. It was when two men walked on the moon. And it was uh, Neil Armstrong, as was mentioned previously, and Buzz Aldrin. Uh, The spacecraft was named the Eagle. They landed on a surface section of the moon called the Sea of Tranquility. And as soon as they landed, that was the first communique was where they were transmitting from. I think it said something like, Houston, this is Tranquility Base. The Eagle has landed. And when the Eagle, the spacecraft, landed, then these guys walked on the moon for two hours, but as soon as they stepped off at, I think it was 10.56 p.m., or right around there, they said those words that have gone down in history. They said, that's one small step for man. Let me do it this way. One giant step for mankind. (laughs) And the world saw, 10 million people saw, These guys walk on the moon. Now, they said the view of the earth from the moon was spectacular. To look at the earth from that vantage point, the earth never looked as good. From this vantage point, it doesn't look as good. With the traffic, with the taxes, with all the stuff that goes on, all the responsibilities, the workload, the daily grind for some, it's a different viewpoint. In fact... When Buzz Aldrin came back, he suffered a long bout of depression, anxiety, because everything, well, you couldn't get any better than that experience. Everything was so normal, so ordinary. And seeing the earth from the vantage point of the moon, coming back and seeing it from this vantage point, it just drove him for a long time into despair. Now, the trip of a lifetime, I suppose, wasn't on July 20th, 1969, but was a couple thousand years ago when Paul the Apostle was caught up into what he calls the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. And he saw a glimpse of something no one else has ever seen in reality. Yet it didn't, after seeing heaven, depress him as much as motivate him. Now, I suppose Paul may have grown up being Jewish, dreaming of what heaven would be like, knowing he would see it one day, but not before he died. Now, we make a big deal of our accomplishments. You know, uh, we we say, well, we've been to the moon. You know, that's over 200,000 miles away. Well, it is a long way, but in, in comparison to the rest of the galaxy, it's really not that far away. You could walk to the moon were there a bridge. If you walk 24 miles a day, you'd make it in 27 years to the moon. 
But if you could get on a ray of light, which travels at 186,000 miles per second, you'd get there in 1.5 seconds. Just, boom, you're there. But if you wanted to get to the nearest neighbor star, it would take you 4.3 light years, or 4.3 years traveling at 186,000 miles per second because Alpha Centauri is 25 trillion miles away thereabouts. The Milky Way galaxy itself has a length of 100,000 light years. I know that's inconceivable, but that means if you were traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end to the other. When you did that, you just barely left the front yard because they tell us there are up to 100 billion other galaxies past it or around it. It's a big place we live in. Now, how far away is heaven? If that's our universe, how far away would heaven be? And how long does it take to get there? Well, you get there instantly. That's the ironic thing. Your spirit has that instant in if you're in Christ and redeemed. It doesn't take you 4.3 light years or 100,000 light years. You're just there. And Paul was there. He saw it. And yet, we don't have much detail about it. And I'm a little mad at Paul for that. Of all the things I wish he would have told me, it's this experience. But he said, in his words, he was not permitted to do so, or it was not lawful for him to do it. Now, this is the section where Paul is defending himself. He didn't want to do it. He's defending his apostolic authority. He feels like he's forced into it because he has really enemies in the church at Corinth, Judaizers, legalists, who are feeding the church a line about Paul. They are dismembering his credibility. And they're boasting in their credentials. They had letters of recommendation from leaders in Jerusalem. And they were saying things like, well, we have the authority backed up by important people who wrote us letters vouching for our ministry. What does Paul have? Where are his credentials? Where's his PhD from? Of course, Paul had the best credentials. He's the guy who started the church in Corinth and in Ephesus and in Galatia and in Rome. On and on and on. He was the founder of many churches and, as he will say tonight, signs and wonders, signs that marked him as an apostle, is what he had as his credentials. They did not. He's reluctant to boast, but he does. He has been in chapter 11. He continues to do so in chapter 12, again, reluctantly. But I want you to notice something in verse 5. He says, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. I'm going to brag about my weaknesses, he says. The very things that my enemies are scowling me for, I glory in. My weaknesses is what I stand behind as my credentials. And you'll find out why. Now, uh, we're going to read it, but there are lots of life-after-death experiences. Now, this is Paul's... I'll explain what that might be in a minute. But all around us, I, I, it's on television, it's in booklets. 
Life after death. What happens when you die? Listen to the amazing testimonies of people who saw the pink and bright white lights in the tunnel and on the other side, you know, and, and they're basically all the same, the ones that are broadcast. It's a white light, it's a warm feeling, and at the other end, it's something like, it's okay, we're all going to heaven. I'm not afraid to die anymore. Even if I lived a life that was wrong and sinful and believed in Mickey Mouse instead of Jesus, we're all going to get to heaven. How do you know? Because I felt a warm feeling and saw a bright light. That's it? Yeah. You're willing to stake your eternal life on that? Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. I recommend that the life after death experiences that you trust are biblical ones. Paul's, for example. Or Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. One went to heaven, one went to hell. In fact, there was a cardiologist, Dr. Morris Rawlings, who wrote a book, Beyond Death's Door, he called it, a few years back. Uh, Let me tell you who he was and what he said. Dr. Morris Rawlings is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology, clinical professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. An unbeliever. Found as a scientist no evidence to corroborate the biblical accounts of heaven or hell. At first. Then he said that after seeing and listening to the experiences of Over 100 patients, he changed his mind. He wrote the book Beyond Death's Door. Here's some excerpts. He said this, I am thoroughly convinced there is life after death and that there are at least as many going to hell as going to heaven. The turning point in my own concepts occurred when a patient experienced cardiac arrest and dropped dead right in my office. Of course, that alone didn't change my thinking, but the fact that this 48-year-old postman was screaming, I'm in hell. Keep me out of hell. Each time he responded to resuscitation efforts did cause me some concern. (laughs) Typical of the chilling reports of the afterlife was the grim recollection of a man who was clinically dead, he said, clinically dead of a heart attack for four or five minutes. Dr. Rawlings says, I was at his side when he revived, and he immediately began telling me of his visit to hell. He said he felt as if his body was falling down a shaft until he emerged into an enormous cave. He saw a lake of fire and brimstone. All around him, he said, were the bony bodies of people moaning helplessly. One patient was so shaken by his experience that he quit his job to join the ministry. Dr. Rawlings added that doctors are embarrassed to make inquiries into such spiritual matters. Instead, we mostly hear of life-after-death experiences that are the heavenly ones. But he says, quote, Nobody can afford to ignore the reports of these patients. I'm convinced there is a hell, and we must conduct ourselves in such a way as to avoid being sent there at all costs. (laughs) Amen to that. And amen to Paul's experience of going to heaven and seeing these things that were just so amazing to both see and to hear. He writes this in verse 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. God knows. 
Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. And he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I forbear, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Paul was not a lightweight. This man had his fill of visions and revelations. In fact, we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 9 as a guy who saw a vision of the resurrected Christ when he's on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. You know the story. He was taken off his horse. He was lying on the ground. There was a bright light. He heard the voice of the Lord. It was a vision of Christ. He was blinded, taken into Damascus where he sat there and he couldn't see for a few days, but he did see a vision of a man called Ananias of Damascus coming to him to give him some instruction. He had more visions after that. Uh, We read that he was on his missionary journeys trying to go different places. He went through Phrygia. He traveled through Galatia. He was forbidden by the Lord to get into Asia. So he went down to Mysia, tried to go to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit forbade him, Acts chapter 16. So he ended up in Troas. And that night, twiddling his thumbs, wondering, okay, I've tried to go this way, tried to go that way. I came from that way. Where am I to go? He got a vision. A vision of a man from Macedonia saying to him in the vision, hey, Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul got up the next day and concluded, it was the Lord. We came from that direction, tried to go in two other directions. We're wondering where to go. Saw a vision from Macedonia. I'm going to Macedonia, man. And he went. Later on, he was in the town of Corinth, the very city that Paul writes here, too. Uh, He had an altercation in the synagogue. He was put out of the synagogue. He stayed at the house of a man named Justice. The ruler of the synagogue that day came to Christ. And that night he was probably worried about what was going to happen in that town. Jesus came and spoke to him in a vision. He said, Paul, don't be afraid. Speak. Don't hold your peace, for I have many people in this city. Then he went to the city of Jerusalem, was arrested there. You know, this guy did a lot of jail time. And when he was arrested after being in the temple, the Lord appeared to him, spoke to him in a vision and said, Don't worry, Paul. I know you're arrested, but you... As you bore testimony of me in Jerusalem, you will also testify before me in Rome, before Caesar. Then on the way to Rome, a couple years later, on a boat, huge storm up at sea. Everybody thought, we're dead meat. Now I'm paraphrasing a little bit, you understand. Dead meat actually isn't in the King James. I don't even think it's in the New Living Translation, but it's in the New Skip Version, dead meat. They were going down. And the Lord gave Paul another vision, guaranteeing his life and the life of everyone on that boat, that they would make it and that he would stand before Caesar in Rome. So he had his fill of visions. Then there's this vision of the third heaven. 
He also mentions in verse 1, visions and revelations. God revealed things to Paul, not to the false prophets, but to Paul that no one else ever had revealed to them. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul said, God revealed to me what he never revealed to the sons of men in times past, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the Gentiles and the Jews being merged into one body, the body of Christ, the church. The vision that he is speaking of here is this vision of being caught up into the third heaven. We don't know if it was bodily. He doesn't know. Whether in the body or out of the body. Was I, was I taken up there physically like Enoch or like Elijah? Or did all this just happen in my mind? Was it a vision only to my mind? I don't know. Now, you'll notice that he speaks in the third person, which has caused some people to say, well, how do you know Paul's speaking of himself? Well, because he says in verse 5, of such a one I will boast. In other words, it's me. I'm the guy. Why does he speak in the third person? Well, that was a typical rabbinical style of introducing a tender subject. The rabbi would introduce himself by introducing himself in the third person and then say, it is me. It was very typical to do that. Something else to notice. He said it happened 14 years before the writing of the letter which some think is around 43 A.D. or somewhere between the time he left Jerusalem to go to Tarsus and came back again to Jerusalem, that that period where he went back home and was mentored by the Lord before getting into public ministry. Here's another thought. I'm not saying it's fact, but it's a possibility. Some, and I might have a tendency to agree, believe that this episode happened when he was stoned at Lystra. And they drug his body out of the city of Lystra after stoning him, thinking he was dead. And they drug him out to bury him. And in that state of in the body, out of the body, is he dead, is he not dead, it could be that during that stoning, that's when he was caught up into the third heaven. Which, you know, if that were the case, I think I'd be a little bit put out if God sent me back after seeing heaven. I mean, I just got stoned, so that means if I live, it's really going to hurt for a long time. (laughs) That recovery room's a long process. And then you're in heaven. It's like, yes! Well, Paul, this is just a glimpse. You have to go back. What? Yeah, you're going back to earth. Oh, no. And you can't tell anybody what you saw or heard. Oh, great. He says he was caught up into the third heaven. What does that mean? Third heaven is the heaven of God. The first heaven is the atmospheric or what they call the terrestrial heavens. It's where the birds are. That's where the rain comes from. The rain comes from heaven. It's the first heaven. The second heaven is the celestial heaven. That's where the stars, the galaxies, the moon, the sun. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then it speaks of the heavens in Psalm 19, speaks of the glory of God as seen in the heavens. That's the heavens of space, the final frontier. But the third heaven is the abode of God. Mankind has been able to fly through the first heaven and even walk through part of the second heaven on the moon, 
But no man has been able to get to the third heaven apart from God's help, apart from a work of redemption. The rabbis believed there were seven levels of heaven. I don't know why or where they got it from. I'm content with just knowing that heaven is where God resides, and this is the third heaven, the heaven of heavens where God lives. He says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise. There's another description of it. Paradise, it means a walled garden. It was actually a place in earthly kingdoms that the king had as a special, beautifully watered garden where he would take favored guests and they would have the privilege of walking in a private kind of a meeting with the king around and through the walled garden, spending quality time with the monarch. It was for a privileged few. That's the word that is used. In fact, it is paradisos, that walled garden, that place of favor with the Lord. I was caught up into paradise, and I heard inexpressible words which are not lawful or literally not permitted for a man to utter. Paul's experience would certainly have puffed up most people. I mean, it'd be pretty hard to resist going around telling people, even though God said don't tell people. It would, it would be enough to, to puff most people up. Paul kept it quiet for 14 years. This is the first time we ever have a hint of it. It's not even recorded in the book of Acts. Maybe he even said to Luke, don't write this down. I don't want to sound like I'm bragging. And now he says, I feel compelled. I have to boast because they're attacking my authority. It should be self-evident. You're not defending me. Let me tell you about some visions I've had and some revelations. He kept it quiet for 14 years. Can you imagine Paul with a group of dignitaries? And the dignitaries are bragging about who they know, where they've been. I've been to the White House, met the president, had dinner with him. Wow. Well, listen, I've been to the Vatican. Ooh, well, I've been to Buckingham Palace and the Kremlin. What about you, Paul? Heaven. (laughs) Yet he says, I'm going to boast in my infirmities, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I forbear, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So we learn it wasn't an isolated incident. He had a lot of these things happen to him. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Do you realize that God knows how to balance out your life just perfectly? You know, part of the thing of trusting God, and Doyle mentioned tonight the sovereignty of God, part of trusting God's sovereignty is knowing that the mix is perfect. He knows how to mix the amount of blessings we get with the amount of burdens that we get. If we get all blessings, we'll be very proud. If we get all burdens, we'll be crushed. But if you get the right balance, you'll be mature. Isn't that what Job said? Job was suffering, lost everything. And when his wife gave him that wonderful, godly advice, 
when she said, I think you should just curse God right now and drop dead. He said, you're a foolish woman. Right on, she was a foolish woman. Should we accept only good from the Lord and not adversity? So God knows how to balance our life with blessings and burdens, and He does it not to break us, but to build us up. It'll make us stronger if you receive it the right way. Job realized that, although he thought he was burdened beyond measure for a while. He says, lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, this experience of seeing heaven could have ruined my ministry. He talks about a thorn, a thorn in the flesh in verse 7. What was the thorn in Paul's flesh? Well, let me let you in on a secret. I have no clue. Well, I have an opinion, but I can't be certain. I know that whatever it was, it was a mega trial. It wasn't some little... The word in Greek means a stake in the flesh, a torturing stake, an impaling stake, not a little splinter. I was in the garden playing with the roses. I got a thorn in my flesh. Not any of that. Some stake that was used for torturing. A mega thorn. The Phillips translation has taken the liberty to say a physical infirmity. It was some thing that attacked his flesh, some disease, some problem. Some think malaria. Some think epilepsy. There's a variety of conjectures. Some think, and I tend to agree, it was an eye problem that he had. Remember the description we've given you of Paul before. The only uh, historical description of Paul we have is that he was short, puffy eyes, a single knit eyebrow, bulging eyes, and they were watering, crooked legs, hook nose, bald head. Lovely, isn't it? (laughs) Would you turn with me to Galatians for just a moment, chapter 4? I think there's a hint, and I want you to see it. Verse 13 of chapter 4. And I want you to let this verse sink into your heart. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. Paul is saying, the reason I hung around Galatia and you got the benefit of my ministry is frankly because I was sick and I couldn't go anywhere else at the time. Does God use sickness? Well, you could ask Paul. He would say, if I weren't sick, Galatia wouldn't have heard what they heard. So then, would God always heal? Is God always supposed to take away something that could benefit us and others like a thorn in the flesh? If he took away the thorn then the person having it wouldn't be as mature and the other people may not benefit from it. So why would God take away something that is so beneficial? Paul says it's because of a physical infirmity that I preached to you at first. And then look at verse 15. There's another hint. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Then if you go down to chapter 6, Verse 11, 
he writes toward the end of this letter now, see what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, he doesn't mean a long letter because Galatians is a short one, but he meant literally the letters were large in scope. They weren't 10 point. They were like 24 point. He wrote big because probably he had an eye problem. And we think that when Paul wrote, he used an amanuensis. He used somebody that he dictated to, and they wrote it out until the end. Then Paul signed or wrote the closing comments. And in this particular book, he used large letters so that he could see what he was writing. How did he get the eye problem? Well, you know, he was knocked off his horse at Damascus, and he was blinded for a few days. It could be a residual effect from that. It certainly could be the residual effect of being stoned almost to death in Lystra and not being healed from it. He said he prayed to the Lord three times. But notice back in uh, Corinthians, it says, it was given to me. I looked that up. It's an aorist passive indicative, as if to say, the Lord gave it to me. It was given to me by the Lord, one translation suggests a messenger of Satan, but permitted, given to me by God. Now think back to Job. Use that as a parallel thought. Satan and God had a conversation. Let me at him, Satan said. God says, you're on, but you can only go up to this line. Don't touch his flesh the first time. Then go ahead and touch his flesh, but don't take his life. There were limits that he set. So we see Satan acting to destroy, God acting to develop, using the suffering to develop. God permitted it. It was given to me, he says, this thorn in the flesh. You know, if you remember back to your chemistry days, I barely do. But I do remember that There were certain poisons that on their own were poison, but when mingled together were beneficial. You take chlorine, but it's a poison by itself. But if you take sodium chloride, if you take two elements and put them together, you have something beneficial. You season your food with it, salt. You can take things that are harmful and they would kill you, but God knows how to mix the burdens, the blessings, and even two things or three things that are bad for you, but weave them together in such a life and set parameters that the result will be a blessing for you and maturity for you. He's the master chemist. I know we don't like to hear it, but it's as if God looks at you and says, I know just what you need. You need patience. You need endurance. You need maturity. You don't get it by reading a book. You get it by becoming the book and God writes it into your life. It happened to this apostle. Now, he says back in verse 9, uh, well, verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded, strong word, pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. You can relate to that. This is the natural recourse of the Christian. God, please take away the suffering, the pain, the disease. It's natural. We relate to that. That's probably, hopefully, our first recourse. 
we come and we talk to God about it. But here, I think, is the issue. What Paul admits to is that he believed that what is necessary in dealing with this thorn in the flesh is to get rid of it. Not to live with it, to get rid of it. Because it's a distraction. God, get rid of this thing that distracts me from serving you. I can't serve you fully as long as I'm distracted by this suffering. You've been there. Lord, I love to serve you more than I am, but you know I... I'm weak physically. I just can't do what others can do. I can't do what I could when I was younger. So therefore, I can't serve you. Now, if you could only make my body stronger, then I could serve you. Or, Lord, I'd love to serve you, but this person I work with is so obnoxious. If you remove that person from my life, things would be so much better. That person distracts me. Then I could serve you. Lord, I'd love to serve you, but I'm married to that creepy husband who doesn't go to church and doesn't like me to pray and has said this and that. So if you could just get rid of the thorn. By the way, you'll be interested to know this. One Scottish commentator actually said that Paul's thorn in the flesh was his wife. (laughs) I had never heard that before I read that commentator. Which leads me to think that that commentator had... Real problems at home. Because there's nothing that indicates that. I got a call from a man in Washington, D.C. He heard our radio broadcast (coughs) in the area. And I happened to be in one day where he called. I don't know how I got the call, but I talked to him over the phone. And he said toward the end that he had an unusual disease and yet he had a heart to serve God on the mission field. But he knew that he could never go to the mission field because he had a disease. And I think he was shocked when I said, why? Well, what do you mean, why? I have this disease. And I listened to him, and I'm not an expert in matters. I know a little bit about some medical things. And, and I said, well, you know, Paul had a medical condition. He traveled all over the world. He had friends to help him. But he did it. You see, we're often too busy telling God what he needs to do rather than just listening to what God tells us to do. So he prayed, pleaded three times. I don't think he liked the answer at first. For the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. All you need is grace. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly... I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, God said, no. Heal me. No. Heal me. No. Heal me. No. By the way, no is an answered prayer. Where do we get off saying, God doesn't answer my prayers? No is an answer. Rejoice. He answered your prayers. It wasn't the answer Paul wanted right off the bat, but he learned that it was the best answer as time went on. My grace is enough. It's sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul realized, okay, I get it now. When I'm weak, when I have an infirmity and I realize I'm weak, I'm sick, I I have this issue, this condition, because I'm aware of it, it makes me trust in his strength, not my own strength. 
so I lean harder. If everything's perfect, a person tends to be self-sufficient. God wanted him to be Christ-sufficient. So he said, my grace is enough, and I will gladly boast in my sicknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, this is going to sound weird, I take pleasure in my sicknesses, in my reproaches, in my needs, in my persecution, in my distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What is this guy, masochistic? Torture me, Lord! No, he realizes the wisdom of God in causing this apostle to rely totally upon God's strength. He looked now at the thorn in the flesh as a gift of the thorn. And I think you heard some testimonies tonight where even Mary said, I don't look at it as suffering. God has shown me so much through this. It's a gift of a thorn. I remember growing up Christmas time. Remember the gifts your parents gave you? Some you liked, some... You know, socks and underwear every year. But they would bother wrapping them. You know, put a bow on them like, Oh, thank you. I didn't like that. I wanted the toys and the cool stuff. But I needed those things. Believe me, I needed those things. And there are certain gifts that God gives us that we need. And Paul realized he needed this one. Adversity. The gift nobody wants. In fact, there's a book put out by Yancey. Pain, the gift nobody wants. How is a pearl formed? Suffering. Adversity. A foreign body, an element like a piece of sand, is introduced into the shell The organism responds by sending out knacker or this layer of substance that forms around the grain of sand and hardens, and then another layer of knacker and then another and another until soon you open it up and there's a pearl. And we think, what a beautiful jewel. But that jewel, that value came through suffering. Your life can be more valuable if you suffer the right way. That's Paul's experience. Now listen to verse 11. He sort of comes out of it now. And he says, I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I had to have been commended by you for a nothing. I was behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. They didn't defend this apostle. He sort of thought they should have against these false apostles. But they didn't. And he mentions that. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches except that I myself was not, a bur- was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. <laughs> He's saying that tongue-in-cheek. I'm sorry that I didn't rip you off like the false prophets did. I'm sorry that I didn't take up the offering like I did from the Philippian church who supported me. I am as the eminent apostles with only one difference. I never wanted to be a financial burden to you. Now for the third time, I am ready to come to you and will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. If you are marking your Bible tonight, I suggest you underline or put in yellow or put stars or put little people jumping up and down next to that little verse because that marks the servant. I don't want what you have to give me 
I'm seeking you. I want you. I love you. I want to serve you. I don't want what you have to give me. I don't seek yours, but you. For children ought not to lay up for the parents, but parents for the children. And by the way, he was their spiritual father, right? And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Here's the heart of the apostle. It should have been evident. Lays it all out. You know what kind of a person I was among you. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Look out. You want me to get mean? I can turn it up. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and licentiousness which they have practiced. I'm coming. I want to come in the right way, in the right spirit. I want all this stuff settled before I get there. I want the offering settled. I want this apostleship stuff settled. Titus was my representative. He didn't rip you off. I didn't rip you off. Get it together, Church of Corinth, lest this happens when I come. Because they accused Paul of being weighty in letter when he would write. Oh, this guy can write a mean letter. But when you have him in public, he's as weak as they come. So he concludes the 12th chapter. Did you notice something when Paul mentioned his suffering in this chapter? He prayed... He wondered why he had it, but he never mentioned that God gave him an explanation why he had it. Just, my grace is enough. How many times we ask why? We don't need to know why. Now, I, I've struggled with that. I, I've met many people. Why has this happened to me? Why did this... Would you feel better if you knew all the reasons why? Would that heal your broken heart? Oh, great. Now the explanation, it's been faxed to me by God. Here it is. It's laid out. Now I understand. That's not going to heal your broken heart. You don't need reasons. You need resources. My grace is sufficient for you. See, Paul thought the whole thing is that God should remove the thorn rather than supply the grace. Now he learned that the issue, the answer, isn't the removal but the supply of grace. A bar of steel worth $5, if hammered, that's the operative term, hammered into horseshoes would be worth $10. If hammered and fired and beaten and made into little knife points for surgical scalpels would be worth about $15,000. If further beaten and fired and hammered and worked and made into tiny little springs for fountain pens, or for ballpoint pens, 
it would now be worth $32,000. The value of the $5 bar of steel goes up according to the fire, the beating, and the adversity. The more valuable it gets. Suffering can make you more valuable an instrument to God. And when we can learn, my grace is sufficient for me. Now, Paul had the vision of heaven. You probably never will. But we have enough of the Bible to fill in some of the blanks. Jesus spoke about preparing a place for us, though he didn't give us much detail. But the book of Revelation gives us a partial composite of the new Jerusalem, our heavenly home, the millennial kingdom, a little bit of a glimpse into the eternal state. So that we ought to be living, walking on this earth, but our eyes focused on heaven. We should have at least some view of where we're going so that we have hope. Now, we don't have a full picture of heaven. I've often wondered why. Why didn't God, you know, he wrote so much about the tabernacle, how to make an ark and a lampstand and beat incense up. Why didn't he spend a few more chapters about heaven? Well, listen to what A.W. Tozer figures. He says, I figure the reason, excuse me, Vance Havner. Vance Havner said probably the reason we don't have much detail about the afterlife, about heaven, would be illustrated by a boy sitting down eating a bowl of spinach while on the other end of the table is a chocolate cake. He will find it very difficult to eat that bowl of spinach with his eye on the cake. And trying to tell us anyway in our limited perspective about heaven, I guess that's like trying to tell a a four-year-old he's going to have a great honeymoon. (laughs) He's not going to grasp the concept yet. In his 20s, he'll get it. But at four or five, he won't get it. Paul got it when he got that glimpse, but he said, wasn't permitted to tell you. That's where we're going. Bishop Richard Loring, now deceased, now in heaven, said we have only one life, but we have three separate livings in one life. The first living, said Loring, is in the womb, nine months. That's all that child knows. It's dark, it's wet. And when it's time for the birth, he comes into cold air, he comes into bright lights, and he naturally cries. It's painful. It doesn't feel good. Now, we call that birth, and we call that after birth, unfortunately, Our society now says that's when life begins. We believe it begins before that. That's the first living. It's in the womb. It's preparatory for from birth till death in this life. The second living is this life. The arena is larger, but the purpose is the same. Just as the nine months was in preparation for this life, this life is in preparation for the future life. When a child dies, it must feel to him like death. That's why he cries. Everything that is familiar is gone. There's no more moisture. There's no more darkness. It's light. It's bright. There's air. There's people talking, slapping him, cutting things. This is horrible. And while he's saying, this is horrible, we're going, oh, it's wonderful. Now, when we die, 
Why is it that we or other people go, this is horrible, and God say, this is wonderful? You're coming into the third heaven. If we know Christ, that's where we're going. If we don't, we ought to. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul who, who was there beyond the Milky Way, beyond the universe, into the very heaven of heavens, either by body or only by vision. But he saw inexpressible things, not lawful for a person to utter. He wasn't permitted to share them. Lord, we can only trust that what he wrote was inspired by your Spirit and that it so motivated him to live on this earth It was so wonderful because he knows that's what he's going to go to when he dies. I pray that we would just take courage from that. We're all going to die, Lord, one day unless you come back before then. So we're going to meet you one way or the other. I pray that you would use this life to prepare us for that future. And I pray that we would be prepared by a deep, rich, intimate relationship with you. Because we're never going to look back if we give our lives for your glory. We're never going to look back and regret. We were too spiritual. We went to church too many times. We read that Bible way too often. But we would regret it if we didn't. Lord, help us to live with priorities. We think that's why you brought us here tonight, to be reminded of that. And now, Lord, we turn our praise to you tonight. In response to what we have read from your word. Some of us are deeply suffering. Some of us are not. But in a week or two or months or years, it will hit. We don't know when. And so we render you praise tonight. You are the Lord of balance, giving us blessings and burdens that are really blessings in themselves because of what they do for us. And we want to declare, Lord, that we believe that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.